All right. If you have your Bibles, please turn in them with me to 2 Chronicles 29. Uh, I'm going to be there toward the end of my time together with us together today. I will be going to other passages, so uh, you, you will certainly be, feel free to, to turn with me to them. Uh, I was out of town this last week, uh, and this message is one that I had determined after the decision came down on Friday uh, to preach, so I did not have time to put it together in a more formalized fashion where I can put the verses up on the screen for you and all of those things that I typically do. So you're going to perhaps be a little more dependent upon your own Bible today, which is not a bad thing. There are Bibles in the windows, wells, uh, to either side, if you would like to grab one of those uh, for this morning and follow along, since you will not be able to follow along on the screen with me uh, today. In 2 Chronicles 29, uh, we are introduced to the reign of Hezekiah. And I'm going to talk about that, as I said, toward the end, as we, as we think through the nature of our response to what has happened uh, this past week. I, in my Sunday school hour, I went through, as it were, kind of the legal elements of the decision that passed down this week in, in the, the Supreme Court as it related to the overturning of Roe versus Wade and of uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And we talked about why it is, in fact, uh, quite a important decision. Uh, many people are a little bit confused because, as we know, or as, as you know if you've been following, uh, this does not necessarily do anything to overturn abortion in this country. Uh, rather, it simply allows the state legislatures to be the ones to arbitrate this decision for each state as it relates to le the legality of abortion and the extent uh, of that legality in every state. And so California is still California, New York is still New York, and uh, abortion on demand will still be very much so available in those states. And then you have various other states uh, who have effectively legal, uh, uh, made abortion illegal altogether. And we will perhaps see a great deal of movement and shifting over the next several years as it relates to this in the states. The debate is able to happen again. So I'm not going to get into all of those various elements as it relates to the legality per se. Uh, it might come up, but, but today I want to talk about um, our response. And before that, uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the nature of abortion and where uh, Orthodox Christianity has come and where it stands as it relates to the idea of abortion. So today, in the vast majority of Orthodox, the Orthodox Christian world, abortion is seen as a great evil. Um, and it has historically always been seen as such. There are pockets uh, within Christianity that do not see it as such, and we'll address that a little bit, but it has been seen as a generally great evil. Um, there have been different times uh, as it relates to when it, when it is understood that a, a child in the womb becomes, as it were, a life. Now, historically in the church, as we go back and we read what the Catholic Church had written about these things and such over the years, um, historically in the church, uh, it had been connected, and in common law, it had been connected to the term quickening. And we know from our King James Bibles that when we talk about the idea of quickening, oftentimes the quickening is the idea of the enlivening, right? The enlivening of our spirits is how the Bible often speaks of quickening. Uh, in history, the idea of the quickening has been when a mother is able to feel the life in her womb, right? When, when she begins to feel kicks, they would call that the quickening, and at that time was generally where the church regarded that, uh, that, that child as being alive and thus human, and so having all of the, the natural expectations that would come with the biblical teaching of humanity. 
Now, the reason why historically this began to become more of a issue is because as technology increased and as technology progressed, that, that line of quickening began to be pushed back farther and farther and farther to where today we recognize that the heartbeat uh, starts very, very early and technology allows us to see that humanity is almost an instantaneous thing um, as it relates to conception. And because of that, that created this uh, a bit of tension with common law and a bit of tension, particularly um, in uh, a, a wing of people who recognize that there will be certain times and certain circumstances whereby um, uh, tragedies, injustices, and such uh, might pit the life and future of the mother against the life and future of a child. And so this is what began the discussion, which, um, which would, would, and then, of course, the sexual revolution and all of the wickedness of the 60s, um, brought things to, to bear and, and, and started a very lively discussion, not just in the United States, but really all around the world. Um, and the, in the United States, that, that discussion was ended by judicial fiat. But it did not end as it related to the understanding in the church. And the church has actually swung significantly more as technology has increased, and we've seen um, how early the reality of humanity is seen in a child through sonograms and uh, um, understanding DNA and these sorts of things. Uh, it has brought to bear the, the, the various arguments of the church as it has always been to a child in the womb uh, much earlier on. And I want to introduce you or remind you of some of those arguments that have, that have been in the church from generation to generation historically as it relates to Children in the womb, out of the womb, uh, uh, and, and then humanity as a whole. Basically, as it relates to humanity, and then we would discuss when that humanity applies to children. And, if, and, and this begins with Genesis chapter 1. We've talked about this already. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says, and let, uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And so we recognize from very early on that as God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul, that God created in that man his own image. And this reality of the image of God and man, as we've talked about in our Genesis series, would be particularly relevant when it comes to um, God establishing the government and the consequences thereof. So we'll get to this beginning uh, next, not next week, because we're going to talk about liberty next week. The week after that, in Genesis chapter 3, as we work ourselves into Genesis chapter 3, and we talk about Cain and Abel, we are going to come to the first murder. And we're going to see in this first murder the idea of one man taking it upon himself for his own unrighteous reasons to snuff out the life of another man. Now, that, that, the concept of murder is not contemplated there in Genesis chapter 3. The reality in Genesis chapter 3 is a little bit different. The focus of that account is not on the murder itself. The focus is upon what's happening in Cain's heart. And then, of course, the, the attempt of Satan to undo God's promise of a chosen seed. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But it is 
particularly after the flood, when Noah and his sons get into the ark and there is the flood for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights, the ark rests upon Mount Ararat. And it is there that we begin to see a new, uh, another institution brought about. We saw the institution of marriage and of family, that man would leave his father and his mother and would cleave into his wife and they too would become one flesh and, and man becomes a living soul. Or, and and uh, they, they, no. they too become one flesh and what God has, uh, has, has joined together, no man should um, put asunder as Jesus would say in the New Testament. But then in Genesis chapter nine, when Noah and his sons come out of the ark, Bible says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That word replenish there does not mean refill, but in our English language, the word replenish simply means to fill. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fish of the sea into your hands they are delivered. So this is the first point where we see God deliver uh, the, uh, the ability for man to eat the animals of the earth. Before that point, that had not been delivered unto them, man ate of the herb of the field. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, verse 3 says, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your, your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. This is where we begin to see God connect the image of God to uh, what we would call the first institution of human government, where God delineates that mankind has the right to shed the blood of another man if he has shed the blood of a man. That if a man or a beast, in fact, the Bible says in verse five, if a man or beast kills another man and sheds his blood, the life of the flesh being in the blood, so that life is connected there to blood, that at that point, humanity has both the right and the obligation to shed the blood of the man or the beast that shed the blood of another. And then in the, in the Old Testament law, we would see all of the different tiers for this, whether that is uh, what we would call murder, premeditated murder, where there would be um, a process of adjudication and then there would be the death penalty, or whether it was, say, what we would call today involuntary manslaughter, where there was an opportunity for a man to flee to what, we, what were called cities of refuge. And if he fled to a city of refuge and he remained in that city of refuge, he would be spared after being tried and found to, uh, the, the death found to have been an accident. He would be spared being killed, but he would have to remain in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. If he left that city of refuge then those, the family members of those who, uh, of the man who was killed or the woman who was killed could then avenge the blood of that, that dead family member. And so we begin to see this. And we also see here this connection to the life of the flesh being in the blood. And that was something which was not uh, very consequential as it related to the church's thinking about um, abortion early on, which is why the only thing that they had to kind of hang their hat on 
historically was the quickening. The fact where you heard a baby, or where you felt a baby move, at that point, there's the baby there. But then again, as technology has increased, and we find that I believe it's eight days after conception, the heart begins to beat, the question becomes, well, what is the heart beating? Well, the heart is beating blood. And then you realize that as, um, as, as technology has increased, that if the mother's blood mixes with the baby's blood, then that is extremely dangerous for the baby. Re- recognizing that the baby has its own DNA, its own blood type, its own uniqueness to it, And when that standard gets reapplied, that the life of the flesh is in the blood, so that the shedding of the blood of one brings about the penalty of death upon the one who shed the blood, and understanding that the baby's blood is, in fact, unique from the mother's blood, then the church began to historically roll back their understanding of this idea of the shedding of blood and of humanity to the fact that effectively the heartbeat, right? Or more or less immediately upon conception. And that is because of this idea of the image of God of man, uh, in man. The fact that God has placed into a child his very image. And the image of God is sacred. God holds it as sacred such that the shedding of blood means that the, the blood of one who shed must also be shed. And then we, we take from that then other things that, that we would draw from Scripture. Of course, we, we are, many of us are very familiar with uh, the exposition of David in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is another common passage that the church has historically gone to as it has sought to think through the nature of a child in the womb. In Psalm 139, David writes this, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, that would be the grave. Behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning, the wings of the morning would be the the rays of the sun. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. And so we see this idea that the psalmist regards the fact that God knew him in the womb, that God fashioned him in the womb, that his substance was known to him even though it was yet unperfect, even though he was in the womb and thus developing, yet God knew him, his members were written, his substance was already laid down. Thus the idea of, of the reality that, that, that he was even in the womb him, right? He, he says, I was there, I was in the room. My, my substance was unperfect, but my members were written. And so once again, we see this regard in in the Psalms and in in this poetic idea 
for the concept of life. Now, this Psalm 139 would not be enough for the church to hang its hat on directly. We would hang our hat upon the other argument I made about the image of God and man and the nature of the life of the flesh being in the blood. And that is where our doctrinal understanding would lie. Of course, our scientific and our, our, our um, um, biological understanding is another aspect, and that all supports what the church has historically understood. But it comes back to that doctrinal idea. So we, the church has characteristically or historically seen in the image of God and in the life of the flesh being in the blood, life. We have characteristically seen it in these poetic expressions, the reality of God's design from the womb. It's also found in Jeremiah where God says that before he, he was, uh, while he was in the womb, before he was born, God had chosen him to do this task of proclaiming truth to the nations. We also would see it anecdotally in the historical acknowledgement of life and consciousness in the womb and other times in the scriptures. When uh, Elizabeth is, uh, is, uh, conceives with, with Zechariah and, and she is pregnant with John, who would be known as John the Baptist. The Bible says in the sixth month of her conception of her pregnancy, uh, Mary comes to visit and the child leaps in her womb. At the, at the salutation of Mary. We find that in Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Once again, we see in that a tacit acknowledgement of consciousness and of recognition, even in the womb of the Messiah, who John would become the forerunner of. We see it in the striving of Jacob and Esau. We'll get there eventually in Genesis, chapter 25, verse 22, where Rebekah is troubled and she appeals to the Lord because... <laughs> because there's something happening in her womb and she doesn't know what's going on. And God tells her that there are, two, there, there are two nations striving in her womb, recognizing that even in the womb, there was this, this, this uh, contention among brothers that would continue into their lives. And having twins myself, it is amazing to see how the things that we saw in the ultrasounds as it related to their tendencies have actually persisted into their character and personality. And so we can see that through technology, but we get a glimmer of that in Genesis 25, that these two nations already in the womb, these two nations were already striving in the womb, right? So we see the image of God in man. We see the life of the flesh being in the blood. We see the reality of God's design in Psalm 139. We see the historic acknowledgement of life and even consciousness in the womb. We also find God's tremendous heart and love for the innocent and the powerless. And this is where we connect the nature of our understanding of a child, of a human being in the womb, also to the advocacy that has become what, what is called in our, our culture, the pro-life movement, is that it is a fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. And the church has always been on, the the, has always been the tip of the spear to fight for those who have not been able to fight for themselves, whether that is um, uh, an anti-eugenics idea, whether that has been slavery, of which the church was the tip of the spear in anti-slavery, whether that is um, uh, advocating for um, the, in, in, in Europe, particularly during the Industrial Revolution, for what were called the street urchins, right? Those kids that their parents worked in the factories all day, maybe they worked in the factories too, they couldn't read, they couldn't write, they had no future, they had no... They had nowhere to go. They had no way to move up in life. And the church began this thing called Sunday school. And they began Sunday school as a means by which to simultaneously evangelize these young children, but then to give them on their one day off a week, the opportunity to learn how to read and write by teaching them how to read the Bible. 
So the church has always been the point of the spear as it relates to reaching out to the victim, to, 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 in, to innocent and powerless people in society and helping them. Indeed, James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So a part of that pure religion that we hold to is this idea of visiting the fatherless and widows, visiting those who are innocent and powerless in society. Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Recognizing Jesus' love, when the people tried to push the children away, Jesus said, No, let the children come. And he was likening them to believers. He was not saying that children, all children go to heaven. Uh, that wasn't the idea there. The idea there is he was saying that true believers are like children in that they are willing to set aside all of their reliances and all of their, pre, they, 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 they set aside their preconceived ideas. They set aside all of their skepticism and then they come by faith and love to the Savior. And, and Jesus recognized in children that natural tendency, that natural trust, that natural reliance, and Jesus said, it is a wonderful thing that we see in children the same kind of trust and reliance that the believer is called to have in Jesus. And so there's a likening there that, that put children close to the heart of Jesus. And we see that in our own children. I am always amazed, my children and, and, and others, at, at their natural trusting demeanor, their love, their, their openness, their willingness to to, to uh, open themselves up. And it's something that as parents, we have to guard and we have to preserve and we have to, to buffer. But what a wonderful thing when a child can live in that openness that they have. What a wonderful thing that my daughter can just wander up here and, and she's not thinking of, oh, oh, I'm disturbing the service or disturbing daddy or whatever. She just wants to be held by daddy. And there's a, there's a, a purity and an innocence in that, a wonderful thing. And there's going to become a day where she's going to realize that that's not appropriate and she's going to have to get snuggled by daddy another time. But thank God when a child doesn't have to have that early on. It'll be learned. But that's the kind of idea when Jesus, that Jesus invoked in Mark chapter 10. Suffer the children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And so we see the heart for the innocent, the heart for the powerless. We see the heart for the child, for, for the, 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 the heart that is open and, and that is undefiled. But we even see this characteristic of God rooting itself all the way down even to the wicked. And I talked about this not too long ago. I've, I've invoked it several times in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says this, Rejoice not when thy, thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. So consistent is the character of our God as it relates to those who have an injustice done against them that God is even willing to turn away his wrath from the wicked when the wicked are in a, in a, a manner that is outside of that which is aligned with God's justice when the wicked are mistreated. So that if I rejoice over the, uh, over the downfall of the wicked in a way that is uh, fundamentally unjust or vengeful, that it might compel God to turn away his wrath from the wicked because of God's tremendous justice. And so as we think through these ideas, once again, this has lent the church, it has drawn the church to this idea 
to this compulsion to advocate for children in the womb. And as technology has increased, it has only encouraged and increased the resolve of those who have, who have, have um, assumed this sound doctrine unto this end. Now, there, is, uh, there are a few caveats to the thinking as it relates to, to this idea. And one of the primary ones is a caveat found in Exodus chapter 21, among a couple of other places in the scriptures. And in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22, and, uh, and effectively through 25, we read this. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So we see in this, this principle, which is not a, it's not a principle of Christianity under grace. It's a principle, it's a legal principle, and it's a principle under the law, which was the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth principle. And in this, life for life. Now, what has been argued based upon this translation in the King James is that in this scenario, men are striving, and as they're striving with one another, somehow a woman, a pregnant woman, gets involved in it, whether that's advocating for her husband who's a part of the, the fight or whatever it might be. And um, the Bible says, so that her fruit depart from her. And it has characteristically, well, from a wing of the church, been interpreted, this has been interpreted to mean that the child dies. And then after the child dies, it says, and yet no mischief follow. And in that he would be punished, that based upon what the husband and the judges would lay upon him, but that would be it. However, then if mischief follow, and it has, this has been interpreted as the woman dies, than life for life. And so it has been said, well, in this case, then the, the Hebrew text must not interpret the child's life as life because the fruit departs, but there, there's only then an added layer of, okay, then if mischief, can, if mischief follows, then life for life, that must be the life of the mother. But what is interesting is that that is not um, necessarily what this means. That is a... Based upon the King James translation, that is a, 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 a valid way of thinking, but it's not a um, definitive interpretation. The idea of her fruit departing, that word depart there means to come out. It does not mean to die, which is why the word die is not there. It is the idea of separation. So it has been thought among several interpreters that the idea is that when this woman gets hurt, she is thrown into premature labor. And as she's thrown into premature labor through the jostling, falling, whatever it might be, then this child is delivered. And then if no mischief follow, in other words, the mother and the child are yet healthy, are okay, even though she was delivered prematurely because of this, this, this um, striving, then the only punishment would be effectively a punishment of assault upon the woman. But if mischief follow, then life for life. And that could be mischief upon the child or the mother. If either one dies, that is just as valid an interpretation. 
Now, we can't use this as a proof text because the interpretation can go either way. But what we can certainly do is not use it as a proof text either way. So that when the Bible speaks to this verse, it is not demanding or it is not essentially conferring upon the child a lack of life, but rather uh, it is open to interpretation, but it is just as valid to say that the mischief that applies to either child or mother when the mother goes into premature labor and the fruit departs or leaves her body, she goes into premature labor because of the striving that she was under. So that has been characteristically the argument against what we would call the pro-life idea in the scriptures, and it is simply not one that has any sort of definitive reckoning to it. To this end, then, as, and as we look at what, if, if nothing else, and thank God that the, the debate is now open again, but if nothing else, if we had a debate about when, about when life began, what it is impossible to say is that the modern abortion movement It is impossible to say that it has become anything other than sacrificing children on the altar of the God of self. When the mantra back in 1973, when Roe was codified, when the mantra was safe, legal, and rare, there was perhaps even in the church an argument to be made for that idea, depending on when, when, when any individual body determined that life began. And again, science has now pushed that to effectively conception, uh, almost undebatably. But when we look at what abortion has become today, when we look at what the vast majority of those 60 million children who have been aborted were aborted for, it was for convenience. It was in order that people could feel that they could commit adultery and fornication with impunity without having to deal with the consequences. And if we take that spirit, the spirit of what abortion has become in this country, and we give the nearest corollary in the scriptures, the nearest and the most accurate corollary to this in the scriptures would be passing the children through the fire of Molech. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, we see the first instance of this, the first prohibition against this. Now, we would see many of the kings within Israel and Judah actually engage in this process. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, the Bible says, There shalt not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. The whole reason why God was driving the nation of Canaan. People ask, well, what is this genocidal God who drove the people out of Canaan? Well, he drove them out after 450 years of mercy going back to the days of Abraham when God said, I will give you this land, but I will not do it yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But when the time came for God to drive those people out of that land, for God to destroy them utterly. The reason why he destroyed them as a part of that was this idea that they were sacrificing their children on the altar to this God, Molech. They were literally taking their live children and they were placing them on this altar and filleting them alive. And for what reason? So that they could have a good crop the next year. For what reason? So that they could incur the favor of the gods for wealth and prosperity in their life. They were sacrificing the life of a child 
for their own material gain and benefit. And that is the spirit in the modern abortion movement. That children are being sacrificed on the altar of the God of self in order that these people can have the lives that they envision for themselves and not be hindered or encumbered by the need to restrain their hedonistic desires, even to the extent, even to a, a, a minor extent, but rather to get rid of these unwanted children for the sake of their own lifestyle choices. And regardless of what we determine, regardless of all of the other arguments involved, when we see what abortion has become, that is inevit- uh, undoubtedly what it has become. And to that end, we know that God is not well-pleased. And so that's a brief, sort of brief, look back at where the church has stood as it relates to abortion and why. What happened on Friday, as I mentioned, was not that abortion was outlawed, but it was so significantly more than just a symbolic win. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Righteousness, uh, when righteousness overshadows a people, there is a freedom of spirit that overshadows those people. What happened on Friday regardless of of anything else as it relates to the states, is that the, the, the soil was prepared for righteousness to be returned to this land. That as states individually vote for men of righteousness to lead, righteousness can be reimposed in the states. And people aren't going to like it as it relates to their, the stripping of, of the God of self but there will be rejoicing. But even more definitively, the righteousness, the the ground has been laid for a restoration of righteousness. But what absolutely happened, Proverbs 21.3, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. What definitively happened is a true injustice, an injustice against the laws of this land, an injustice against the liberty of the people of this land was undone. And this is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That injustice has been undone. Justice has reigned supreme. To that end, there is rejoicing. And I have no doubt, but that the Lord was pleased on on Friday, June 24th, with what happened on that day. And that brings us back to 2 Chronicles 29. We're introduced to a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah came at the tail end of 16 years of wickedness. There had been a a king, his father, in the land named Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old, and he reigned 16 years until he was 36. Ahaz did wicked things. The Bible says in verse 3 of of 2 Chronicles 28 that he burned incense in the valley of uh, of the son of Hinnom, and he burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He sacrificed also and burnt incense 
in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree, whereof the Lord his God delivered him into the hands of the king of Assyria. So here's a man that for the 16 years of his reign did exactly that thing. He burned his children to the fires of Molech in the valley of Hinnom, the abomination of the heathen, it's called there in 2 Chronicles 28. And for that, he suffered dramatic consequences, and not just him as the king, but see, kings lead nations. And when leaders do wickedness, their nations suffer. And the nation heaved under the burden of this wicked king Ahaz. Relatively speaking, there were not all that many wicked kings in Judah's history. In Israel's history, they were pretty much all wicked. But in the southern tribes of Judah, in Judah's history, there were a lot of great kings. Before him had been uh, um, Jotham, and then before him, Uzziah. Jotham was a good king who had reigned for 16 years, and Uzziah was a, a good king that reigned for 52 years, although the end of his days were not good days. And so we had Uzziah, we had Jotham, then we had Ahaz, and under Ahaz, the people mourned. Then we pick up in 2 Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 3. Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and 20 years old, and he reigned nine and 20 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And as if we were to read, we would continue to read of him uh, calling the priests and bringing them together and, 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 and uh, uh, preparing for a Passover and opening and repairing the, the, the temple and all of the wonderful things um, that, that were to restore worship. Skipping, however, to chapter 30, verse 1. And Hezekiah sent unto all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. His heart was focused upon, uh, upon bringing the nation together, of reducing the arbitrary divisions among them, uh, having the unified nation under God. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently, neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. So they couldn't do it in the first month as they were supposed to because the priests were not clean, because they had not kept up their ritualistic cleanliness because the temple was not functioning. So they were going to need a month to prepare and they were going to do it in the second month. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregations. So they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba, even to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not done it of a long time in such a sort as it was written. So they actually called to northern Israel, Beersheba to Dan, and said, come and be a part of what we're doing here. Hezekiah probably actually hoping to unite the nation back to one nation. That didn't end up happening. But... The post, verse 6, the post went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah and according to the uh, commandment of the king saying, ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And be not like your fathers and like your brethren which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation as ye see." Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you turn again to the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion 
before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return unto him. And so some of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun, they humbled themselves, they came to Jerusalem. It was a wonderful time. We skip uh, to verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. Continuing into verse, uh, chapter 31. Now when all this was finished, all Israel that were present went into the cities of Judah and break the images in pieces and cut down the groves and threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin in Ephraim also in Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession into their own cities. Now I want you to take note of something here. A leader sought for a restoration. He took what his father had done and he went in the entire opposite direction. His father who had sacrificed children in the valley of Hinnom and he instead repairs the altar of the Lord and he calls the people unto it. And as they do this thing and as they do what is right before the Lord, then the next natural response is that they went and they broke down their idols and their images and their groves and their high places. Now, I don't know, nor do you know, what the, the, the fullest results of the decision this last Friday will be. We may not even know in our generation. We may not even see in our generation great results. But what, as I said, what happened on that day is that the soil was prepared for the seeds to be planted for righteousness once again to grow. And that's what Hezekiah did in his day. He prepared the soil, and then he, he, he planted the seeds, and then those seeds took root, and it brought about an a, a, a awakening and a revival by which the high places were torn down, the idols were destroyed in pieces. And by God's grace, it's very possible that a first domino just fell that will lead to an awakening in this land. And so what should be our response to this? Well, first, verse 26 of chapter 30 said there was great joy. Now, there's not great joy in the whole of the land today. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a, a very small contingency of very angry people. And then most people are probably generally ambivalent because it's not going to change much today. But I think we, God's people, have reason to rejoice in this day in a unique way. Uh, not, not necessarily for today, but for what today might mean for the future. Because this was a big deal as it relates to the possibility for righteousness to begin to spring in this nation once again. It is also a reminder of a, it is a, of a God of justice, and it is a realignment, even if just as to a small degree in this country, with justice which means it's a realignment with God's favor. And that's a good thing for this country. It should also compel us to intercede for our people. The prayers should not cease. The prayers should redouble. 
because now there's new opportunities on the horizon for children to be spared, for repentance, for awakening, for revival. Let us be renewed in our determination to contend for righteousness, remembering that we are part of a multi-generational righteous legacy. And I don't mean our righteousness, I mean Christ's. A legacy of a church that has contended for righteousness for thousands of years now. And we've played our part and we still have our part to play. We need to remember that not everything changes overnight. That though the changes in the culture over the past two decades have been dramatic and negative, yet there has also been a change that was 50 years in the making. Some cancer roots itself deep and it really has to be cut out. And it might take time. But while there is still hope to be had, we ought to hope. And we ought to keep taking one, foot, one step in front of another, putting one foot in front of another. Keep contending for righteousness. Keep telling the truth. And it's not just about things such as this. What about your own life, your friends, your relatives, that wayward child, that wayward mother, that wayward father, that wayward sibling? Keep praying. Keep the testimony. Be a testimony. Because you don't know if the seeds you plant today might just bear fruit. Could be tomorrow. Could be in a month. It could be in a year. It could take 50 years. So we do what we're called to do. We just be faithful. And let the truth do its work. Let the spirit do his work. So we fight in our day. We may not see the results in our day. But we keep the faith. And let us pray that this is the beginning of an awakening. Maybe not. Maybe it'll come. Maybe it'll go. Maybe every state will decide, you know what, we want to enshrine abortion rights and it's just going to be as it was, only without Roe. Maybe. But maybe not. And that's something that the church has not been able to say for 49 years. But we can say it on this Sunday. Maybe not. And may God help us as we pray and as we live out the truths of the scriptures in our own lives that maybe, just maybe, we can see the day when the innocent are completely protected, not just in our state, but in our nation. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.